you'll open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, I read an article recently entitled, How You Can Tell When It's Going to Be a Rotten Day. And the author goes on to say, you know you're going to have a bad day when you wake up and hear the birds singing outside your window, you pull back the curtains, and it's a group of buzzards singing. You know you're going to have a bad day when you get in your car, get onto the interstate, and your horn accidentally goes off and it remains stuck, and before you know it, you're riding behind a motorcycle gang. You know it's going to be a bad day when you walk into the office and your boss says, step into the office, but I don't think uh, you need to bother to take off your coat. You know, we all can laugh at scenarios and situations similar to that. But the truth of the matter is, when you look at the world in which we live in, and you look at the headlines that are staring us in the face each and every day, we sometimes wonder, can the day get any worse than this? We're not four months into the year yet, and we find the world is gripped in terror as we face Islamic extremists blowing up people in the airports of major European cities. The stock market continues to struggle. Unemployment and underemployment is still a grave concern to most people. Most of us are terribly concerned about the upcoming presidential election and the weak slate of candidates that remain. The full effects of this turbulent era are beginning to take its toll on families. In fact, what we sense in a micro sense, or macro sense, we also see in a micro sense. That is, what's happening on a global scale, we find in some ways happening in our own homes. We find marriages that are hanging by a thread. Children drifting away from their parents. People's dreams crashing down around them professionally. We characterize our age as one that is worried, tense, anxious, and stressful. It couldn't have been any better for those two men that we're about to read about on the road to Emmaus. Everything that those men thought was good in this world died on Friday, prior to Sunday. We call it Good Friday, but for the men that we're about to read about, it was anything but good. In fact, everything good died on Friday on a hill called Golgotha for these two men. 
Luke 24, verses 13 through 35, it's the longest story in Luke's gospel. In the ancient world, the only way that an author could communicate that that something was really important was by giving a lot of space to it. You couldn't underline, no italics, no bold. There, there, There was no way to highlight it. So in the ancient world, they would would give a lot of detail, a lot of graphic description to a story in order to communicate to the audience that this is a very important story. And in fact, this is the longest story in Luke's gospel, the road to Emmaus. There are two main points that I want to bring out this morning. The first one is this, that life without Jesus ends in hopelessness. Life without Jesus ends in hopelessness. Look with me in verses 13 through 16. Here we see two men. We know one of the name is Cleopas. And they leave behind the resurrection hope that's in Jerusalem and they don't even realize it. Verse 13 says, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. These two men had experienced the crashing blow of their hopes and dreams with the death of Jesus. And yet, as they head home to the little village of Emmaus, Jesus is alive. He's been raised from the dead. Women have seen the empty tomb, and they've, and they've spoken to angels. But, but these men, they can't, they can't bring themselves to believe those reports. And so, from Jerusalem they go to the village of Emmaus. We don't know where Emmaus actually was located. It was close to Jerusalem. It's about seven miles, the Bible tells us. But Emmaus is where you go when you have nowhere else to go. Emmaus is the road that you take when everything important to you dies. Emmaus is the place that you head when when life has taken the very best that you had to offer and the best it had to offer you and has given you nothing in return. Emmaus is the dead-end road of life. And that's the road these two men are traveling. It's the same road that some of you are traveling. Some of you are on the Emmaus road today. Some of you are experiencing the very worst nightmares that a human being could ever experience. It may have to do with your marriage or your relationship to your children or it may have to do with your finances. Whatever it is, many of you today find yourself on the Emmaus road and you're headed in the wrong direction. You're leaving Jerusalem behind. Christ is alive and you're living as if he is dead. I want you to notice in verses 17 through 21 the the hopelessness and despair that result from the death of a dream. Look in verse 17 with me. And Jesus said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And underline this phrase, And they stood still looking 
sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people. And how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. Underline that phrase, the very first part of verse 21. We were hoping. There's two phrases, they stand like bookends in the lives of two dejected people. One is, Jesus says, what's been happening, what's been going on, and and they stood there looking sad. And on the other end, we were hoping. What were they hoping? They were hoping that Jesus was the Messiah. They were hoping that he had come to establish a kingdom. They were looking forward to the yoke of Roman domination being thrown off. They were looking for an era of history when Israel would be restored to greatness. They were looking to Jerusalem becoming the center of the world. Everything they had hoped and dreamed and believed in, they had put in this man. And this man is now dead. He's been dead for three days. But it wasn't the Romans that killed him, not really. It was the leadership the chief priest and the rulers, they delivered him over to the sentence of death. And they crucified him. You can sense the hopelessness and the despair dripping from their words. These were men who had been crushed. These were men that had lost virtually everything they had believed in. These are men that had had left family and friends to to follow along. They weren't one, one of the 12, but they were very close to Jesus. They were a part of that larger crowd that believed in him and trusted him. They were a part of that that crowd that stood on Palm Sunday and raised their palm branches and cried out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. And everything between Sunday and Friday began to grow dark and bleak and concerns began to mount. Until about 9 a.m. on Friday morning, they impaled him on a cross. Again, we call it Good Friday, but there's nothing good about Friday for these men. And in fact, as far as they could see, it was going to be Friday for the rest of their lives. For the best man they had ever known. The man that they had believed in. The man that they had dreamed of. Had been crucified on a cross on a hill called Golgotha. 
and his body thrown in a borrowed tomb. Little did they know that that it was Jesus that was walking with them. Their eyes, as I mentioned, were prevented from recognizing him. They're walking in the wrong direction. They're leaving Jerusalem and the resurrection has taken place behind them. But I want you to notice that, that the reason that they find themselves in the mire of hopelessness and despair is their refusal to believe a reliable word. Look in verse 22 with me. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. The women had reported a reliable word. But in the first century Judaism, the last person you would believe is a hysterical woman. A group of hysterical women claiming that they had seen an angel and that the tomb was empty and that the angel said he was alive. That's too much for them to believe. They're they're rational, reasonable men. Not irrational, emotionally driven women. And the last thing that they could believe is that he was alive. Dead men don't live. And they had seen him on that cross. They they had seen him fighting for every breath. They saw him drifting in and out of consciousness. They saw him on the very brink of, of entering into shock. They saw when they plunged a spear into his side to confirm that he was dead and out came blood mingled with water. They saw him take that dead body down and wrap it up and put it in a tomb. Dead men don't live. They never have. They never will. Regardless of what women have said, he is dead. So they refuse to believe a reliable word. Life without Jesus ends in hopelessness. Life without Jesus ends in despair. But that's not the end of the story. Because faith in the resurrected Jesus changes everything. It's a game changer. You've all heard the little adage that, well, that's a game changer. A game changer is when, is when things turn around on a dime. A game changer is when something unexpected happens, something literally from out of the blue, something no one anticipated, something no one could have planned for, and then everything is different. The resurrection's a game changer. Faith in the resurrected Jesus changes everything. First, it changes your perspective. Easter changes your perspective about who Jesus is and about God's plan. Look with me beginning in verse 25. And Jesus said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Notice it's a slight rebuke. He rebukes them not because they didn't believe in the prophets, but because they didn't believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scripture. Now that's a Bible study. 
That would have been a seminary class worth attending. That would have been a conference worth sitting in on. Jesus meticulously and, and, and clearly working them through the pages of the Bible and helping them to understand that he had to suffer and die. It was of absolute necessity. Why did Jesus had to suffer, have to suffer and die? Because there's no other way that we can be made right with God. There's no other way that we can experience forgiveness of sin. There's no other way that we will not bear the punishment for our own sin forever and ever unless Jesus Christ bears it in our place, unless he dies in our stead. That's why it was absolutely essential that he hang on the cross and cry out, Eloi, Eloi, Elama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me? Because it had to take place this way if God was going to be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. His character demanded payment for sin. His graciousness required that he offer a substitute. He offered it in the person of his son, which was completely unexpected. No one could have ever dreamed it. They had read those verses a hundred times, and never had they seen it as clearly as they saw it on the day that Jesus opened the scriptures to them. Easter changes your perspective. I want you to notice, secondly, that Egypt changes your passions. The things that were once important to you aren't quite as important as they were before. The lack of zeal and and heartfelt desire for the things of God come to life like they never have before. Look with me beginning in verse 28. Notice the transformation. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. The Bible study had made a deep impression on them. It had left an indelible mark on their soul. So they urged him, saying, stay with us. For it's getting toward evening, and the day is now already nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving thanks to them. Then their eyes were opened. Remember earlier, their their eyes were prevented from seeing him, recognizing him, knowing who he truly was. And then as he breaks the bread and, and likely prays over the meal, that is, the guest has now become the host, Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. He vanished from their sight. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us? While he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us. Notice, Easter changes your passions. The stranger is the Savior. Their lives were dramatically transformed over that meal. The scriptures had been taught to them. 
Jesus prays over the meal and God allows them to see who he really is. And they realize, that's why my heart is like this. This is why my my soul was aflame as he taught me the scriptures. This is exactly what we need today. We need the kind of passion and heartfelt zeal that these men experienced as they sat around the table with Jesus. As they sat there, something miraculous and magnificent and marvelous was taking place within them. The Spirit of God was at work. And they felt like they had never felt before. They understood the Scriptures like they had never understood them before. Easter changes our passions. But it also changes our direction. Easter changes your direction and restores your hope. Look with me beginning in verse 33. And they got up that very hour. Now they had already had a rather arduous day. They had walked seven miles in the hot Palestinian sun. They had just finished a very good meal. But their eyes had been open. Their hearts were ablaze. And they've got to make the journey back to Jerusalem. And they found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them. We can only imagine what they would have talked about as they walked along the way. That seven mile journey between those two guys, it probably took them half the amount of time that it took them to go from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Half the amount of time to go from Emmaus back to Jerusalem. Their legs probably had never been any lighter. Their heart any fuller. Their eyes any brighter. Their passion any more ablaze. And they no sooner get there and they discover that Jesus has already appeared to them and to Peter. Notice again in verse 33, they got up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem, found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. I mean, the last person you would have thought that he would have appeared to would have been Simon Peter. Uh, Make him him waller in his guilt just a little bit. Let him hear all kinds of reports and, 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 and let him struggle just a little bit wondering, is the Lord going to appear to me? Because you remember just a few days earlier, Peter had denied that he knew Jesus three times. In fact, the third time he swore an oath. I swear to God, I don't know him. Aren't you you one of his disciples? I swear to God, I'm not one of them. And there there he left it. Swearing to God that he didn't know Jesus, his closest friend and companion. The man that meant more to him than any other person in the entire world. I swear to God, I don't know him. And there Jesus makes a personal appearance to Peter. How gracious and kind is that? How forgiving and magnanimous is that kind of grace? Now, you might think today, you know, I've gone too far. I've done too much. Things are too dirty. Too messed up. The web's just too tangled up. 
It just can't be undone. I'm just not going to be able to get things sorted out. If Jesus appeared to Peter, he has no trouble appearing to you. He has, he has no trouble opening up the scriptures for you. Jesus loves you just as much as he loved Peter. Jesus' love for you is just as intense and real as his love for Peter. Well, Easter changes your direction. Notice in verse 30, 35, they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he, recognized, how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. And they, were, they left Jerusalem, and as they left Jerusalem, they were leaving the resurrection. They were leaving hope and a future. They were leaving spiritual opportunities. They walked away dejected and discouraged and hopeless and in despair. The future seemed like it was going to be Friday forever and ever and ever. Resonating in their minds as they closed their eyes would forever be that crucified man whom they thought was a savior. And now they leave behind Emmaus and they leave behind hopelessness and despair and they return to Jerusalem with the with not only joy but with faith in the resurrection you know what what happened to them can happen to you today Easter can change your perspective it can change your passions it can change your direction but it can also change your eternal destiny Easter can take a person who's on the broad road to hell and put them on the narrow road to life. Just like Easter changed their destiny, Easter can change your destiny. There's so many of us in here today that could stand up and say, Easter changed my life. Some of you were moral and upstanding and good citizens and wonderful parents, but you would have gone to hell nevertheless. But Easter changed your destiny. Others of you would stand up and say, you know, I wasn't a good person. I wasn't a moral person. I wasn't an upstanding person. I was a bad person. And I did a lot of bad things, and I, I did a lot of things that I was truly ashamed of, but... But Easter changed your destiny, and you would be glad to confess that today and state it. How can Easter change your eternal destiny? First, you've got to accept God's love that's offered to you in Christ Jesus. There's no other way that a person can be made right with God except Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus Describing himself metaphorically, said, I'm the door. There's no other way to be right with God than to go through the door. You must accept God's love that is offered to you in Christ Jesus. Every other religion is false. Every other movement is false. Truth is found in Christ alone. 
That means you have to believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again. It's not enough to believe that Jesus existed. It's not enough to believe that Jesus was a moral teacher. It's not enough to believe that he was a good man. It's not enough to to suggest that he he has some wonderful platitudes. It's not enough to suggest that the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon that's ever been preached and and a good moral guide to living. You must believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again. He didn't just rise spiritually, he rose bodily. He he didn't rise as a spirit, he rose as the God-man. You have to believe that he died literally and that he was raised bodily. I can remember giving a, a lecture once entitled eaten by wild dogs, or raised from the dead. And after that lecture, a Bible scholar came up to me and he says, do you really believe what you said? And I said, well, what part of it? That a person can't be saved that doesn't believe that Jesus was raised bodily from the grave. And I said, I absolutely believe it. I said, how can you believe that? I said, well, the Bible teaches that. And he says, you're too smart to know, you're smart enough to know that not everything in the Bible's true. The Bible teaches unambiguously and without apology that in order to become a Christian, you must believe that Jesus died physically. And he was raised bodily from the grave. And then you need to commit your life to the resurrected Jesus. It's one thing to believe it intellectually. It's another thing to embrace it with your life. It's one thing to acknowledge it verbally. It's another thing to commit your life to it. Uh, The Bible word is the word repent. Jesus, when he began his ministry, he says... Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect because you're not going to be perfect. There's not a single person in here that's perfect. The only perfect one is Jesus Christ. In this life, we're going to struggle with sin. But what repentance is, in essence, is saying, I'm not going to live my life for myself. I'm going to live my life for Christ. I believe that he died for me. I believe that he was raised from the dead for me. I believe that he bore in his body on the cross the punishment for my sin. I believe that he's been raised for my justification. And I give him my life. He will be my Lord and my Savior. So you accept God's love. You believe that he died and was raised to new life. And and you commit your life to him is the resurrected Jesus. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, we would love for you to know him. You say, Pastor, is it it that easy? Yes, it's that easy. You know, if he had made it very difficult, none of us would make it. He says, believe 
and repent. Maybe you're here today and, and you're a religious person, but you find that your passions aren't very commiserate with what the Bible teaches about a love and a desire and a hunger and a yearning for Jesus. We'd invite you to come forward. We'd love to talk with you. We're not going to manipulate you or pressure you or coerce you. We'd just like to, to introduce you to someone that can sit down with you and answer questions for you about your spiritual life. Do you truly know Jesus? Do you really know Jesus? Or maybe you would say this, this morning, Pastor, I, just, I know that I don't. I just don't. And I don't know that I'm ready to today, but I'd like to hear a little bit more. I'd like, a, I'd like to talk to someone just a little bit about it. We're going to have some staff members here at the front. We'd invite you to come forward, and, and we're not going to embarrass you in some way by, by making you stand, uh, stand here. We'll introduce you to someone that will, will take you to a very comfortable place and allow you to sit down, and, and, and they'll just talk with you about your spiritual life and answer any questions that you may, that you may have. Maybe you've been visiting with us and you've made the decision, hey, we want to make this our church home and you would come forward this morning and we could introduce you to someone that would help walk you through the membership membership process. Most of you are are members here at 9th and O and and as we're singing, maybe what you would do is at some point you would just stop and contemplate, has, has the weight of the resurrection done in me what it did in them. And maybe what you would just say to the Lord, Lord, stir my passions. Loose my lips that I could share my faith. Help me to feel about Jesus the way, that, the, the way these two guys felt about Jesus. I'm going to ask if you'll stand and I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. and We're all going to join together in song. We'll have some staff members here at the front. So just come on. Come on down and, and we'd love to talk with you if there's any way that we could be of assistance to you. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that you have given us all that we need to know in order to be saved. And Father, we thank you today that Christ Jesus is indeed the risen Savior So have your way among us and have your way in us, Father, in these final moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.